So today, we are continuing our study on the doctrine of the church. Just so you know, if you are new here, our typical staple diet from the Scriptures as we work our way through books of the Bible, just going passage by passage, verse by verse. We have been in the book of Mark for about two years, and we're up to chapter 10, and we've put a pause on that just for a short time because I think the Lord has in mind for us to focus on a few different teachings from the Bible as a whole. So rather than continuing, Mark, we're going to pause that for just a little while. And we've done that for the past two weeks. We've been on this particular teaching in Scripture that we call the doctrine of the church. So that's where we're at. What we're trying to do here is train ourselves to think rightly about God's church, okay? And by think rightly, what we mean by that is think biblically about it. We, uh, we have our standard, our standard is Scripture, and we want to say, what does God teach us in His Word about this thing called the church? And so far... In these two weeks that we've been looking at this, we've seen that God, first of all, places a massive amount of importance and focus on His church. It's like His passion project. Not only did Christ give His life for His church, but He also promised to personally build it. And so, He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then we also looked last week at kind of the church's origin story, we might say. So, you know, some of the, if you're a movie fan, maybe some of your favorite ones are origin stories of these superheroes. You know, how did they become Superman or Batman or whoever? Some of those are interesting, how they became what they are. Well, the church's origin story is a pretty interesting one, too. It goes way back. I'm talking way back. All the way into the very mind of God before time even began. Before there was a single molecule of matter, God had purposed in himself to save a people out of the world. He would create a world. He would put his image bearers in that world. They would rebel against him, and yet he would show himself merciful to save. This was all part of his sovereign decree from eternity past. And we looked at the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians last week where Paul, right at the opening of the letter, he gives this little mini lesson about what the church is. And one of those things that he lists, one of those phrases is, the church is made up of people who are called to be saints. And who is it that called them? Did they call themselves to be saints? No. This calling is a supernatural calling whereby God, as he sovereignly pleases, brings dead sinners to life. In other words, he causes them to be born again. God does this. 
And so the story, the origin story of the church can clearly be classified as divine. And that was the title of last week's message, The Church, an Institution of Divine Origin. And when you think about that, not only is the very idea of the church divine because it's all built on God's choice to save a people for his son, but it's even divine in the particular people that he places into it. Because the only way you get into the church is being supernaturally, what we just said, called by God himself. And how does that happen? Many of you have this testimony. He opens your eyes to see reality like you've never seen it before. He gives you a new heart that has new desires. You finally see your sinfulness in light of God's holiness and you realize you're doomed on your own, right? And then the Spirit of God turns your eyes upon Jesus, as the song says. And he says, There's the one you need. He's right there. He lived and he died and he rose again to redeem sinners. Run to him. He will save you. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit does. And then, just to reiterate something that I said last week, no one, when we think about that origin of the church being divine, no one was sitting around one day saying, I think we ought to start up this thing called the church. That's not how it worked. The church isn't human in its origin. It is divine in its origin. God thought it up, and God builds it. God adds to it. So you put those two sermons together, and really two things come to the forefront as far as application goes, at least in my mind, Number one is if the church is that important to God and so central to his plan of redemption in the world, then shouldn't we also value it like he does? Shouldn't we pour ourselves into it for his glory? That's one thing to think about. And then secondly, since God is the one who thought up the church, since it comes from him, then we'd better seek to align ourselves with how he says the church should operate, right? In other words, because the church is an institution of divine origin, we better not think of it as our church and try to run it with our own set of rules or our own set of standards or our own set of preferences. It's his church. So we ought to try to be faithful to... to carry the church to to live out this life within the church as he says it should operate, right? So that's kind of the recap of the last two sermons. Today, though, we're going to look at another aspect of the church. We're going to look at this distinction, as you see there up on the screens. We're going to look at this distinction between the universal church and the local church. So let's dive into it, shall we? When you read your Bible... When we read our Bibles, we see this word church popping up over and over again, don't we, in the New Testament. And sometimes you can tell from the context that it has a rather um, expansive meaning, one that spans the whole globe, 
right? And one that transcends any one period of time, like when Jesus says, the verse that I quoted earlier, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You can rightly conclude there that Jesus is talking about something that's made up of a vast number of people across the whole earth throughout time. He's not limiting it to one specific area. He's not saying, for instance, I will build my church in Jerusalem, or I will build my church in Ephesus or Corinth, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, but I can't make any promises for the rest of you guys. No, he's talking about this vast global thing. It's global, and it's timeless. But then, just a couple... Verses later, really, a couple chapters later, in that same book of Matthew, we see Jesus teaching his disciples about how to deal with unresolved sin, Matthew 18. And we'll probably have an entire message on Matthew 18 later in this church, uh, Doctrine of the Church series. But he says in there that one step in this corrective church discipline procedure, this process, one step is tell it to the church. Now, what is the usage there? That seems to be something more specific, like, like more location-based, right? He's using that church to mean a specific group of people located in one area that you can go tell them something. You can talk to them. Then there's other places in Scripture that kind of have that dual meaning as well. We see this in... Um, 1 Corinthians 11, where the apostle talks about coming together as a church. That's uh, 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. That's a meeting of specific people, right? When you come together as a church. And then just a few verses later, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, Etc. So there's a local element to it, coming together as a church, yet there's also this universal element to it that involves God appointing apostles and prophets and teachers in his church as a whole, right? And so <clears throat> what I'd like to do today from Scripture is, is uh, try to show you that although each believer is placed into the universal church at the time of their conversion, and we'll talk about what that means, they are also expected to be a part of a local church. So they're part of a global family of God made up of all believers everywhere for all time, and they are to be part of a specific group of believers in their area in their time who they can get to know and serve and fellowship with, and worship with, and learn with, and pray for, and love, and encourage, and bear with, and forgive, and rejoice with, and the list goes on and on, right? So let's see if we can explore this idea this morning and just clarify it in our minds. And just as a heads up, since this is more of a doctrinal message this morning, we won't be anchored down in one particular passage. We're going to be thinking more Scripture-wide today, we're going to be thinking more systematically today, trying to take in a lot of Scripture and condensing it into this coherent system 
of thought about the church. And that's not a system that we force onto the scriptures. It's a system that we read the scriptures and we say, what is it teaching? Let's put all this together. That is the coherent system. So we're kind of doing systematic theology this morning, okay? If you didn't know you were doing that, that's what we're doing this morning. And um, we're going to probably bring up several verses on the screen. For time's sake, I'll bring them up for you. I would encourage you to jot them down and look them up later to, to just better solidify this in your mind. So, in order to understand the distinction between universal and local, I think we ought to talk about first what that word church means. Have you ever wondered why the Lord chose certain words in the Bible? Why did he choose that one? He chose a very specific Greek word as the designation for his new covenant people. So as the scripture says, as the Holy Spirit led these holy men of old along, as they wrote in their own language, the Greek language, he led them to write exactly what he intended, and he chose this word. Here it is. It's ecclesia, or you might hear me say ecclesia, whichever pronunciation you want to use. I'll probably use both of them. And that word means, as you see there, it means assembly. Isn't that interesting? It means assembly. We ought not miss that. God chose a word that means assembly to be the designated name of his new covenant people, the church. And so the way we can kind of already begin to think about this assembly in light of the universal and the local distinction is like this. The universal church is a heavenly assembly. And the local church is an earthly assembly. And Christians are part of both. By the way, that wording there, heavenly assembly and earthly assembly, that's not original with me. It comes from Jonathan Lehman. So let's think about that for a moment. When God saves us, he makes us part of his family, right? He adopts us. We have him now as our father. We can pray, our father who art in heaven, right? And coming along with that, being into an adopted family, you get also new brothers and sisters who also share that same father. And so these brothers and sisters are from all over the world, and they're from every period of time. And that vast assembly of brothers and sisters in Christ is a heavenly assembly. Many of them have gone to heaven already and are there now, right? The vast majority of them we've never met. And what's really neat is that one way the Bible speaks about Christians is that we've been raised up with Christ and seated with him, where? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 6. And so it's like we're there in heaven with all of our brothers and sisters who have already passed on into glory. We're not physically with them yet, but we're spiritually with them. Hebrews says it this way. 
Hebrews 12. But you, he's speaking to believers, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, the ecclesia of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. So according to that verse, Christians are part of this heavenly assembly. They're enrolled in heaven. They've already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. But here's something interesting to think about when we think about this heavenly assembly, this global assembly of all believers. What has this particular assembly, the universal heavenly assembly, never done up to this very moment? Let me give you the answer. They have never actually assembled, not even once. It's been impossible to do that, right? We can't meet with other believers across the globe, nor can we assemble with believers who have died and are in heaven while, here, while we're here on earth, right? When will this universal assembly have its first meeting? In heaven, right? The Apostle John talks about seeing this. Revelation 7 he talks about seeing a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. That is the meeting that Christians are longing for, isn't it? That is the heavenly assembly that all believers everywhere have been placed into by God but haven't yet been able to attend because the meeting hasn't happened yet. And once God finishes gathering all his elect to himself, then we'll have our first meeting in heaven at the end of the age. And that meeting won't end. It'll just keep on going into eternity. That is the universal church, this assembly that we're looking forward to with great anticipation, okay? But what about the local church? The local church is where the abstract becomes concrete. This is where the spiritual becomes physical, in a sense. There is a regular gathering of real flesh and blood people. And this is where some people begin to have objections, right? Let's just be honest. Some people love the idea of being a part of the universal church. They want to be in the family of God. They want to receive eternal life, but they'd rather pass on the local manifestation of that church where they'd have to deal with 
people, right? People are messy. Aren't we messy? The local church is messy. People step on our toes. People have different opinions about things than we do. People are complicated. You're complicated. I'm complicated. People are hard to figure out sometimes. But this local gathering of Christians is an essential part of the Christian life. And I think it's appropriate to think about it in this way. Every time that we meet together, like we're doing right now, we're doing so in anticipation of that great and glorious assembly that we'll one day experience in God's presence, all together as God's universal church. So, in a sense, we're gathering as the local to put flesh on the universal and kind of image or anticipate that coming assembly. And this local assembly, this local church idea, this is not an extra thing that, that some churchy Christians participate in, for lack of a better word, and others can just sort of take a pass on it. No, we are commanded in Scripture to be a part of the local church. Listen to this verse. So clear. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So God says to his people very clearly, do not neglect assembling together like some people are in the habit of doing he says you're an earthly assembly you need to be assembling right you are to be regularly meeting together for the purpose of that verse says stirring up each other provoking one another to love love towards others love towards God stirring up one another toward love and good works and just being able to encourage one another in the Lord. So let your mind go back to what we said earlier. Ecclesia is an assembly. The word church means assembly. And Christians are part of that heavenly assembly to come as well as this earthly assembly in the present. And those two are intertwined with each other. We're kind of making distinctions this morning to help us understand the theology, but there is an interconnectedness that we need to talk about as well. Let me show you this little graphic to uh, just kind of show you how the relationship works between the universal and the local church. It's like a perpetual cycle. Start with me down in the lower left with your eyes where it says universal church. And then just follow the arrows. The universal church creates local churches, which in turn give evidence for, display, and protect the universal church, which then creates more local churches, and there's just this cycle that keeps going. 
In other words, here's how it works out in real life. They're not in two separate worlds. They're in the same kind of interconnected. They're playing off each other. So if we say that we're part of the universal church, that I've been redeemed by God through Christ, but yet if I don't show very much interest in the local church, someone might wonder if I really do belong to the universal church that, like I have claimed to be a part of, right? They're so connected to one another that to shun the local calls into question the membership in the universal. It's kind of like saying you love Jesus but don't love what he loves, right? Or kind of like saying we have faith but we don't have any works that demonstrate that faith is real. Remember what James said, verse or chapter 2 of James, that... If you say you have faith but have no works, that kind of faith is dead. Real faith in Christ is followed by obedience to Christ. And so, in the same way, real membership in the universal church, which is salvation, that's how you're placed into the universal church. You're saved by God. You're converted to Christ. He gives you new spiritual life. That results in Him giving you the Holy Spirit who dwells inside you, and He causes you to have this desire to meet. That's why it says it creates local churches, because the Spirit indwells you, and now there's this desire to meet with other Spirit-filled people on a regular basis, and that's the local church. So... We look at that word church or ecclesia, assembly, and we see that we're part of both of these assemblies, this bigger, more vast, heavenly assembly that we'll have the privilege of attending the meeting to come, as well as this smaller, local, earthly assembly that meets regularly right now, and that is God's will for every single Christian. Another way we can think about this God does not desire there to be, it is not God's will for there to be any John Rambo Christians. You know John Rambo? I love the Rambo movies. The character John Rambo was a former Green Beret in the story, I believe he was, and a Vietnam vet, and he just keeps, he's out He's a veteran out of the service, but he just keeps getting sucked back into war. They keep calling on him because he was such a warrior to come back and do some mission, and then he'll get abandoned and have to fight his way out. But you give him a machine gun and a bow and arrow with some explosive arrows or something and a Bowie knife, mission accomplished, right? He will claw and fight his way to victory all on his own. And what's interesting is there are a lot of professing Christians who think they can tackle the Christian life like John Rambo, all by themselves, just them and God, right? It sounds really pious, I guess, to say all I need is God. But when you actually listen to God, he's saying, you need people too. He's saying all over Scripture in various ways, you need a community of believers around you. You need to live life with them. They'll help you. 
They'll teach you. They'll encourage you. They'll pray for you. They'll love you. That is God's design for the Christian life. So he never, it's never his intention to put someone in the universal church and have them bypass the local. The local is how he brings about our spiritual flourishing. It's how he grows us. It's his means of grace. It's his tool in our life, one of his tools, to grow us into Christian maturity as we sit here under the sound of God's word week in and week out and as we sing and as we have the godly influence of those around us coming to bear on our life. And that's interesting to think about how he designed this, right? How we need each other. He could have just created us as just these very independent beings who he can accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish through just you by yourself. And everybody's just kind of their own little island to themselves. But that's not how he did it. Here's, here's something to think about. Why do you think God designed the Christian life to be lived out that way? In a church community like that. Why is there so much emphasis on the local church in the Bible to the point of where we heard it a while ago, to the point of receiving a command from the Lord to not neglect meeting together? It's that important. And I think part of it, if we were to just look at the practical side of God's design, when you start looking at the way God designed things, you could say, well, I know I should do it the way he designed it merely because he told me to, but then if you stand to the side and you look at it, you can say, wow, he's actually doing this for very good reasons. This makes a lot of sense. Listen to this. There is a lot of power in assemblies. Let's talk about that for just a second. The power of assemblies. I want to read you something today. This is something that Jonathan Lehman said in one of his books called Rediscovering Church. It is a quote about assemblies in general and how powerful they are. It's very interesting. And bear with me. It's not just a one-liner. It's a couple of paragraphs long, okay? But I think it's worth sharing. Just listen closely if you would. He says, Groups of people are powerful, not just for what happens when they gather, but for what the group becomes by gathering. The people in the group can become a movement, a force, the beginning of a change in the world, for better or for worse. The whole is more than the sum of its parts. Not surprisingly, academics write books on the psychology of crowds. People show up with their desires or their grievances. A charismatic speaker affirms those desires or grievances. The people look around and they see people nodding. They hear shouts of agreement. Individuals discover that they're not alone. Their desires grow. They might even be rallied into action to build up or to tear down. What makes gatherings so powerful? The fact that you are physically there. You see, you hear, you feel. Unlike watching something on a screen in which you're bodily removed from the thing you're watching, a gathering literally surrounds you. It defines your entire reality. God made us soul and body, and somehow mysteriously, he intertwines them so that what affects the body affects the soul. In a gathering... We experience what other people love, 
and hate and fear and believe and our sense of what's normal and what's right can shift comparatively quickly the loves, the hates, the fears or beliefs of the crowd become ours. And he says, this isn't surprising. God also made us imaging creatures. See Genesis 1, 26 to 28. He created us to image his own righteousness, but we've chosen to image other things. This is how cultures form. We image, mimic, or copy the people around us in good ways and bad. Gatherings simply speed up the process. But gatherings aren't powerful only because of the people only, excuse me, but gatherings aren't powerful only for people inside of them. They affect outsiders too. Maybe you've walked through a park, seen a crowd, and craned your neck in that direction. What's going on, you wondered? You walk up to the back of the crowd and peek in. Why? Because you wondered if something was happening that you didn't want to miss, something important or exciting. Or you pick up your smartphone and you see a notification. 200,000 gather in Washington, D.C. for rally. You think, wow, that sounds like a big deal, and you click the link. Gatherings change lives, change cultures, change the world. They're powerful, end quote. Now, that's a pretty interesting way to think about gatherings, isn't it? Maybe we don't often think of them that way, but it's true. Gatherings are powerful. Assemblies shape us. They shape the way we think. They shape the way we live. They shape our values and our priorities and so forth. Then we just say, is it any wonder then that God would choose to center Christianity around this regularly gathered people who can see one another, who can listen to one another, who learn from one another, who love one another, who influence one another for righteousness. Remember Hebrews 10? Stirring up one another to love and good works. That's what happens when you get people together. They rub off on each other, right? Proverbs 13, 20 brings out this principle. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. When you walk with, meaning when you do life with or who you do life with affects you greatly. Walk with wise people, you'll become wise. Walk with fools, You'll become a fool and suffer harm. In the same way, walk with spiritually minded people. You'll become more spiritually minded. Walk with people who know and teach and believe good theology. You'll begin to know and believe and love good theology. Walk with people who love God. And you'll begin to have the fires of your love for God stoked. Surround yourself with people who have their eyes on eternity and you find your eye beginning to rise toward eternity as well. We parents often talk about, you know, we want our kids to choose their friends wisely. And why is that? Because we know their friends will rub off on them. There's a massive influence that friends have on us, either for good or bad. And so carry that idea over to God overseeing his flock. 
He knows that his people will have a massive influence on each other. And God's intention is to place us, each one of us, into an assembly of other Christians who will influence us towards right thinking and right living. And so we just frame it that way. If assemblies in general are powerful, what about a spirit-filled assembly where God promises to make his presence known and his power known and where his word is proclaimed each week and cherished by the people? What kind of formative power will that kind of assembly have? Are you following with me? And I guess when we begin to look at the local church that way, we just have to stop and say, what a kind shepherd to put me into a flock like that. To give us the local church. To put us into an earthly assembly surrounded by people who will help me do the things that I know I want to do and need to do. Love God. Obey God. Grow in grace. The local church is such a gift to us. And it is not hard to obey the command to meet together when you see the value of it. And when you see the kindness of God's care coming through it. Right? Think about what happens each Sunday. When you get a group of Christians together, perhaps it happened to you this morning. I don't know. I don't know what was going through your head or your heart, but you get a group of Christians together on a regular basis on the Lord's Day. They're joining their voices together in song, singing truths about God. They're hearing the same sermons. They're partaking of the same bread when we take communion. And you just look around and you say, wow, I'm not alone in this. And God strengthens you. And you begin to spiritually flourish because of it. That is what God does through his local church. There's another aspect of this universal versus local idea that I'll just bring out. The local church is where we actually obey many of the commands of God. Let me explain that just a little bit. God gives his people many commands in the scripture, right? Tells us how to live with one another, how to treat one another. Tells us how to talk to one another. He tells us what our attitude should be toward one another and so forth. Let's just maybe take an example to make it a little more concrete. Let's use this, Galatians 6.2. It gives us this command, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's the command, bear one another's burdens. Now remember for just a moment, the letter to the Galatians is written to a local church. It is written to Christians who gathered together regularly in a local earthly assembly in Galatia. And they're told, bear one another's burdens. So who is the one another in that command? It's their fellow brothers and sisters in their local church. And that command extends to all Christians. But think about, think about this. How would a person actually obey that command 
if they're not involved in a local assembly? Whose burdens are they supposed to be bearing? And how are they even supposed to know what the burdens are unless they get to know people? Which implies an ongoing commitment to regularly meeting with people, which starts to sound like what? A local church. Or take another one another command from 1 Thessalonians. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Again, who is the one another? He's writing there again to a local church in Thessalonica. But the command extends to all believers in their respective local assemblies. So I can't obey that command with people I don't see or don't know personally or have never actually met with. Hopefully you see my point there. The local assembly is where the rubber meets the road with God's commands. Whatever he tells us to do toward one another, we live that out together in real life in the local assembly. And by the way, there are a lot of one another commands in Scripture. I don't know if you've ever done a search. Search for the phrase one another in the New Testament, and you'll be surprised how many there are. So if we're not involved in the local assembly, we're just, we are robbing ourselves of the very setting that would allow us to obey a host of God's commands. And we not only rob ourselves, but we rob God of the glory that's due him because his people can't glorify him if they're not seeking to obey him, right? One more point today and then we'll quit. The local church is like an embassy of heaven. Think about an embassy with me for a second. An embassy is an officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another nation. Now think about the church. Here's a group of people who are citizens of heaven living in the United States or some other country. And when you step inside the local gathering of believers, you have entered a new nation. You are among citizens of Christ's kingdom. You're going to hear the king's words in that gathering. You're going to see and hear expressions of worship and allegiance, not to an earthly ruler, but to King Jesus. You're going to hear his news instead of the news of the depressing fallen world around us. And you're going to hear his law proclaimed. And you're going to be among people who want to serve rather than be served. You're going to be among people who have joy in their hearts of what Christ has done for them. And do Christians do those things perfectly? No, absolutely not. But it's what they aspire to. It's what they desire and what they strive toward, right? So when you come into a local assembly of believers, it's like you're entering a whole new world. Here is a group of heavenly citizens with different priorities than most of the people I've come in contact with throughout my week, right? Here's people who remind me that my citizenship is not primarily in the United States. It reminds me that I am to be 
and called to be an ambassador of another country, loyal to another king, right? So as we become part of this regular local assembly, which kind of functions as this outpost of the kingdom of God, we just regularly get to refresh ourselves and become encouraged and equipped to go out and be those ambassadors that God has called us to be. Remember in 2 Corinthians? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And when we come into the embassy each week, we're reminded, oh yeah, this world's not my home. I'm just a passing through, as the old song says. So today's message is fairly simple overall. Um, Christians are part of the universal church through salvation in Christ, and we will be a part of that heavenly assembly when that day comes at the end of the age, but we're also called to be a part of the local manifestation of that assembly, the one that assembles in the here and now and helps us to obey God and and helps us to flourish spiritually. And I just encourage you to think about that this week. And, And I encourage conversations about that. I encourage questions about that. If something came up in your mind about anything that was said today, come and let's talk about it. We'd love to talk to you about it. It's how we gain clarity on things. It's how we grow. And we'll just, we'll push a little bit further into the doctrine of the church next time we meet. So for now, let's pray together. Father, in your infinite wisdom, you've not only placed us into an assembly that's yet to come, but you placed us into an assembly that meets now. And you teach us through this assembly. You equip us for ministry here. You give us brothers and sisters to lock arms with. You put us into a regiment of fellow soldiers to fight alongside. When we're injured, we have help. When we fall, we have people lifting us up. What a blessing this is to know that we are not on our own. Lord, help us to see your church in the way that you see it. Help us never to minimize it, but to do everything in our power to give ourselves to its cause. And Lord, if there are those here today who are kind of hanging out at the periphery of the church, just kind of right around the edges, Lord, help them to see the massive benefits of fully diving in with all they've got. And maybe, Lord, even through these messages, someone will see their need to come to Christ for the very first time and be added to the family. Lord, just thank you for all the reminders that we receive just by being here and gathering together. We are citizens of a better country. And we're reminded of our jobs and duties and Yes, our privileges, our great privileges. And it was all bought for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this wonderful means 
wonderful channel of grace into our lives called the church. And yes, even the local church primarily. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory.